You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. You walk into the room with your pencil in your hand. You see somebody naked and you say, who is that man? You try so hard, but you don't understand just what you will say when you get home. Because something is happening here, but you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? Those words open the song A Ballad of a Thin Man by Bob Dylan from the album Highway 61 Revisited, first released in 1965. That's 54 years ago. It could have been written yesterday. Our world is changing at exponential speed, and as it changes, a lot of people feel like Mr. Jones. Something is happening here, but they don't know what it is. Hello, storytellers, and welcome to another opportunity to expand and enrich your world. One of the ways that you can definitely accelerate your growth is by choosing to read more wonderful books. And our sponsor, Audible, offers you a free downloadable audiobook of your choice. You choose from more than 180,000 titles. You get to keep it. And you also get an entire month free of all of Audible service. Go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and choose a form of audio empowerment today. I really value your presence here, your loyalty by listening to this show again and again and I'm going to ask you for a favor. Go to iTunes and leave a rating and a review for this show. One of the easiest ways to do it is to leave a comment about your biggest takeaway from today's episode. And that will help the show to gain more visibility. Then more and more people can have the opportunity like you to enrich their lives. Thank you in advance for doing that. Today's guest is a man who sees what's happening here and gets what it is. He's a technology entrepreneur who calls himself a future crafter. His work with digital technology is helping the world deal with some of its biggest challenges. His most recent venture, Digital Habitats, is Earth's first terraformer. A terraformer modifies the atmosphere, temperature, surface topography, or ecology of a planet. Digital habitats will create fully autonomous, happy cities complete with habitation, infrastructure, and streamlined future world transportation systems. Get ready for an exciting jump into a very promising future with Chris Smedley. Chris, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you, Lewis. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, let's have some fun, my friend. I want to know, first of all, how long have you been fascinated by technology? Uh, good question. Probably since before the womb, but it really manifested my entire life. I can't remember a time when I wasn't fascinated by technology. So now you're going to have to explain to our listeners how you were fascinated with technology before the womb. Like before you came out. <laughs> well, it's it's really I think it it drives on whether you observe as a human being. So that's the curiosity, you know, like Da Vinci would say, the, and be able to experience the world. That's really technology. Nature is technology. It is, but the kind of digital technology that we're talking about today is a totally different animal. Of course. Yeah. So I mean, you know, back in my day, that was probably vacuum tubes. Ah, yes. 
So what were your first experiences with technology that got you hooked on this? When I was, um, I guess, maybe six or seven, I had a next-door neighbor who worked for IBM, and we used to go over and visit from time to time, and he had one of those, you know, green terminals that we're all so familiar with. And when he was away one weekend, I decided I would disassemble it to see how it worked, and that was a lot of fun with just a handy screwdriver. And, of course, I managed to put it all back together and get it functioning, too, which was the impressive part, and... That was what got me off of some sort of punishment. So how did you manage to disassemble a neighbor's equipment when he was away? Did you break into his house? No, we were friendly. And so, you know, I had access there and he encouraged my exploration of things. So as long as I didn't break anything, he was a a bit of a mentor, to tell you the truth. And so you you put it back together, this this terminal? And And it worked, yeah? Mm-hmm. Great. Now, just wondering, when you were a kid, did you have a childhood dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Um, I think that certainly in the era of Apollo, um, many young men and women were encouraged to look to space and space travel and astronauts and that kind of stuff. And I, I was no exception to that. I've always looked up to the stars and had a, an interest in living in other worlds and perhaps as a way of escaping some of the challenges that we've been facing here on Earth. Hmm. That's really interesting, man. You know, because as I listen to you, I, at a very early age, wanted to live in other worlds, but I chose the world of literature and the imagination. That was my conscious escape. Um, And for you and others, it was thoughts about space and perhaps getting off of this planet. Interesting. So my other question is, have you grown up yet? No. No, good. And you, I, I get the feeling that you won't. Well, you know, you have to talk about what the definition of grown up is, and I think that we're finding certainly more nowadays that the idea of propriety and, and conservatism is really not in your own interests for self-development and that too many people hit an inflection point in their life where they go, well, I've pretty much done it all, and then they die. And, you know, the only way that I think you can continually evolve and change yourself is to keep young at heart. Yeah, absolutely. And and to keep the, uh, the imagination, it's like they talk about having a beginner's mind, which in a way means having the openness of a child always. Well, and there's another aspect to this that I think is is relevant, is the search for meaning. When we're young, uh, the world tells us what life is supposed to be about, and then we should hit a point in maturity where we start to tell ourselves what it's supposed to be about, and that's where you can aspire to greater things than you would have ever imagined as a youth. Yeah, I like that. Now, now, did you ever do any other kind of work work that did not involve technology? Oh, yes. You know, going through school and such, I had to do odd jobs and repaired trailers and um, bag groceries, all kinds of regular... Actually, I seem to remember now that I was a cashier at McDonald's for some time, but... Yeah, but those sound like they were transitional jobs. I mean, I've done stuff like working on trucks and things, but I'm talking about any career job that you had that was not in the field of technology. No. No. My, I was always destined to technology. Everything else was a job. Now, a very fascinating thing. You are immersed and knowledgeable about the singularity. Can you explain what the singularity is to our listeners in terms that they can easily understand. Sure. Basically, the singularity is uh, was first developed by a fellow named Ray Kurzweil, who's quite famous in terms of his contributions to technology. He's done got like 19 PhDs. You may be familiar with them. He's currently the chief engineer at Google and is developing uh, a mind, an artificial mind, and you see a lot of his output coming in the Google Mail systems. And Ray, in 2005, put out a book called The Singularity is Near, 
and it was subtitled When Technology Transcends Biology. And this is basically a manifesto for anybody who's wanting to know uh, what the rate of changes of technology, because he basically had predicted that around 2000, we would be going on an upward slope in terms of the numbers of technologies, the rate of change that they were happening. And this was largely derived from the semiconductor industry and, and how much compute power we've gotten there. But the conclusions are that we've moved from a world where everybody was isolated and had no information to now it's a global community that gets instant information. And as we see more technology being brought on, like AI, that ratio of human minds to machines is only going to favor the machines more. And when you say transcend biology, doesn't that include the idea of man merging with the machine? Yes, it does. So you know, briefly, Ray describes three bridges. The first is, if you want to live forever, take care of your biological body now until there's an opportunity to bridge to cyborg type thing where we have implants or other procedures, replacement hearts, that kind of thing. And then the last bridge or the last phase is where we have a full and complete merger into one entity. And I've been colloquially calling this homo digitalis. So it's the next step in our evolutionary cycle. Yeah, I, I understand it. I understand the concept. Uh, I, I imagine that for some, hearing it is probably quite scary, especially because because uh, anything that Hollywood has done in terms of dealing with this has been completely nightmarish and dystopian. Yes, and and there's and Ray actually talks about that. There's a a challenge that comes when you're dealing with large numbers of people. Uh, on whether you appeal to their limbic system and their amygdala, or whether or not you appeal to the neocortex and where their rational thought comes from. And as you can see around the world nowadays, the, the media is often used to create dystopic storylines because they believe that getting the viewer or the reader emotionally engaged is a positive thing. But when it comes to fears and, and those anxieties and other kinds of concerns like that, it's best not to stimulate those. And so this is one of the things that I do as I go to organizations and people and discuss how this change can affect them, how they can navigate it, and provide some comfort that is a counterbalance to, you know, Terminator stories and the like. Great. That's, that, that's wonderful. Thanks for explaining that. When did you first learn about the singularity itself? Well, I've been friends with Ray Kurzweil since the early 90s. Um, and there was a group of people then called Extropians that were futurists. And uh, out of that process, we had all discussed this, this transformational trend, which is Ray basically encapsulated in the singularity. So um, I'd say it would be in the 90s, and of course, the singularity wasn't coined until 2005. And you enrolled in Singularity University, and when did you do that, and how has that changed your view of life? And maybe you can explain briefly what that is, and who is at the forefront of Singularity University. Yeah, so um, Singularity University was formed in 2008 um, with... Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis of Abundance Fame and um, a few other folks. And it was as a, I was actually part of the original founding faculty rather than being an attendee. I was responsible for the energy portfolio back in those days. And um, we had been doing a number of conferences on the general singularity idea and the notion of creating an organization where that message could be spread to the world was inspired by a meeting with Larry Page where he basically, he said in no uncertain terms, if you're not changing the world, then what are you doing? And this was a galvanizing discussion for all of us to move from theoretical and predictive areas instead to how do we formulate a message and help humanity transition through this technological era? 
once we moved past the idea that it was going to happen, it became uh, beholden on us to try and shepherd people. Ah. Okay, and that is basically the mandate of Singularity University? Yes. Singularity University has now educated, I think, some 200,000 people, um, and it continues to this day in cooperation with XPRIZE and a number of other organizations that Peter's related to. And um, the purpose of it is to empower individuals to leverage exponential technology to positively change a billion lives within 10 years. So every graduate of the course, that is their charge. Go out, make a new business, think a big thought, do a moonshot, and try and make a billion lives better. That's beautiful. That is truly a beautiful vision. Now, how have you incorporated what you learn, what you've been learning at SU into your own work? Um, I started a number of companies, and as you'd mentioned at the at the top, you know, the biggest one is Digital Habitats because it's basically looking at how can we fix the planet. Um, so this involves looking not only at, at local problems but taking a global context on that. We've been aligning with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and the $100 trillion that they are putting forward to be able to not only repair the planet, but to address a number of, of frailties and challenges with humanity all before 2030. And so we're encouraged by the movement there because it's now taking the, the global wishes of 193 nations and 7 billion people and turning them into actions. So this addresses climate change, hunger, social injustice, and, and a number of other areas. There's 17 goals in total, and I highly recommend people look at them. And where would they look at them? Uh, just United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. It's, okay. You'll find there's literally millions of people that are, are out there trying to save the planet. And what excites you most? You've touched on it a bit, but about the vision of the singularity and the work you currently do. If you had to say one thing that excites you the most about it all. That the future can be better than the present or the past. This is a challenge for everyone. You were mentioning at the top about anxiety of change, and that's because humans are engineered as animals to be fearful of the future. And so most of us run into a rut at some point in our life where the challenges are a little bit too much for us. And it's nice to know that uh, there's a, a reality to the idea that our future is going to be better and that if we properly steward our technology, there's no reason why you cannot create any future you can imagine. I believe that, and I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that one of the big challenges is that people are so married to um, recorded history and that tendency in people to feel intelligent when they say, well, history just repeats itself. And that's that's that, a big... Huh? That's a really good observation. So if you visualize the, you know, the asotope of the curve for the singularity, you know, curve going up to the sky somewhere around 2050, and you realize that for all of human history up until this century, that, that line of history was basically flat. We did very linear increases in things, which means that it was very easy to put a lot of credence into how things were, but... When you're in an exponential situation, as we are now, the past means absolutely nothing, and it means less and less every day you move forward. And this means that you have to do a change in your thinking. You know, the old financial axiom of a past performance doesn't guarantee future results is particularly appropriate here. And you have to instead think, what is the future that I want to create and work your way backwards from the impossible to the present? Mm. I love it, too, because it means to have the courage to redefine 
and to challenge the word impossible, to challenge it completely. And I think we're going to need a whole new vocabulary. Uh, and it's probably coming about gradually. Because uh, I, I see what you're talking about. And I, at a certain level, I really do get that. I also feel the pull that's been, I've been conditioned to with forces that chatter loudly in my head that say, nah, 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 you know, don't buy that. But I know that that's just chatter. You know? Well, there, there's, it's interesting to discuss chatter because one of the challenges that comes out of expanding ourselves technologically is that we uncover what are now over 130 cognitive biases. And what this tells us is that our assumptions about our brain's infallibility and correctness is absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. And that, that I can illustrate time after time where your organic brain tricks you into making wrong decisions, having wrong attitudes. And then what happens is that the humans talk to other humans and they spread that incorrectness and dysfunction and and anxiety to others, and then that perpetuates. And this leads to a lot of global angst. So one of the, the big challenges moving forward that technology can address is the uncoupling of listening to humans about what is right. Instead, we can now use our AI databases and get objective information, and this I believe, will totally change the way that humans interact with each other, and it's already happening. You're finding there's a bifurcation in people, in those that are willing to accept new information and, and process it and then extend themselves, and those that are not. And this is in and of itself a cognitive bias called dissonance. So there's a lot of people that I'm sure we know. Some of them are generally in the older set, where we, we'd say they're, they're stuck in their ways, they believe that, you know, they're cantankerous at times. We all know examples. And now we can see that, you know, listening to crazy old grandpa is not the best thing to do if you're trying to live in, in the present or the future. Especially, that, especially when he's running a country. Uh, no doubt. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, 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 this, and, and, you know, just to speak on that, this what is being called in the media, things like populism or whatever term, is being played out on the global stage for the benefit of all humans to understand bad behavior. Hmm. And hmm. have an opportunity to go, well, I don't like that. Here's how I'd like to see my country run. Here's the belief systems that I have. And that ideally this should provide a reinforcement to people as they go forward on what some of those values should be, things like human rights and decency and all the civil things that we developed over the past can be reinforced because we see such bad examples. Mm, yeah, I love that. Now, um, I guess I know the answer to this. I should actually be asking how. How will digital technology and the singularity redefine what we call human I mean, you touched on it a bit when you say about merging, you know, um, homo digitalis, but can you paint a picture, uh, a simple picture for people to understand about what we call human now, we won't be calling human in the future. Right. Well, let's, let's start with some of what it means to be human. There's certain emotional, biological imperatives that uh, you know, people who've had children are particularly fond of them. Um, and those who don't take that emotional development route are usually chided by the emotional set. And this is why I was saying before, there's a bifurcation going on in humanity. And those that are driven by emotions are going to be facing the largest challenges. And Conversely, those that look at objective facts and information and, and deal with the world um, in a pragmatic, logistical way, let's call it a Vulcan way, if we want to use terms, and in fact, the whole Vulcan species and Spock is a perfect 
uh, movie metaphor for the angst that's happening in all of us. You know, do I think rationally or do I follow emotionally? And so what will humanity lose? We will lose our emotionality. Um, we will lose our cognitive biases because our machinery will correct for those. And a simple way of explaining it that I've been saying for a long time is that if the singularity will allow every one of us to have God powers, then we must correct our brains to have better ethics, better code of conduct, and a more altruistic goal for ourselves and the species than what we currently operate at, which is usually, you know, what's next on TV or that kind of thing. That, that superficiality will cause people to break into different kinds of, of groups, and those groups will evolve at different rates. Yeah. So, you know, the, you know see, the question becomes, who do you want to be, really, you know? Oh, I know. I get the vision, and I certainly want to align myself with those who will continue to evolve um, into the the beings that we're probably meant to be. And there is a, in me, though, I guess, all right, my, one of my cognitive biases is that I'm hearing you talk, and I get what you're saying. It's not like, oh, my God, this guy's crazy. No, I understand it. I'm on, you're, you're on another, you're on a higher wavelength, but I'm on a similar wavelength. But part of me goes, okay, what about all of those human beings who have never even heard the word singularity? And what about some of them who are quite brilliant and essentially bad Essentially, people who will seize this power and misuse it. I mean, I can't envision that everyone right away is just going to embrace the most positive application of this. Yeah, so the larger, the larger question you're asking is, how do we use technology to control malevolent forces and protect ourselves? Right? From, from existential risk. So it doesn't matter if this malevolent force is an asteroid or it's some guy with an agenda. The underlying approach should be the same, which is that our technology will be our protector. So universal access to information, you know, even if you have things like, you know, mass shootings like, like America is so well known for, there are far better techniques to use technology to address these rogue gunmen than, you know, arming everybody in the school kind of scenario. And that latter behavior is objectively not going to bring about the larger result, which is peace. So, you know, one of the biases of human beings is that we have a, a biologically driven competitive nature which ultimately doesn't scale when the individual gets infinite power. So when everybody has their finger on the nuke, you need a different system. And I have been a big advocate that we should use uh, exponential technology and the communication system that we have to engage people in what I call exponential collaboration. So you have an idea, it's a great idea, and why not engage millions of people and their positive wishes? Clay Shirky talks about the, the cognitive surplus that we all have, that, you know, we can contribute to good causes, and that that is what will ultimately protect us, is that we, we build the walls of good behavior uh, against the, the mellifluous forces. I think it's... Make yeah, it makes sense. It certainly makes sense. Uh, um do you foresee any, I mean, look, how do you see this transition? What, what are the, the serious bumps in the road as this transition begins to happen? Then, yeah. and, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there will be periods of upheaval and chaos as 
it starts to come into place. It's not just going to be universally accepted. No. In, in fact, our predictions suggest that 40% of current nation states will no longer exist by 2040. Mm-hmm. And that the nation state itself is a relatively recent organizational uh, structure, you know, three, 400 years. And that as technology empowers individuals and provides resources and abundance for them in their personal life, the need to aggregate people into social order in large cities and such will diminish significantly. And so out of this, what we see is that the current nation states are far more likely to break out into tens of thousands of micronations where people can have a smaller community, make their own rules of governance, and then use distance between us as the great peacemaker. Mm-hmm. You know, separation, I find, is, is probably one of the best things that you can, you can do when you have challenges with other people's thinking. And that one of the problems that we have today is that we try and cram too many people with too many diverse ideas in the same space. And, of course, the, the bottom percentile can't cope with that. And they become, you know, the downtrodden. Well, but if you're talking about separation being a good thing, it makes me think of uh, the man in the White House who wants to close the border. Mm-hmm. That's, there's a difference between separation and isolation, right? And if you, if you only affect your community and you separate yourself and isolate yourself like the Tibetan monks, let's say. That isn't the problem. The problem is when you have somebody that says, we want to tell the rest of the world what they should do. You know, the whole America first meme is by definition saying, we're going to win, you guys are going to lose. And that's that's not a metaphor that will translate with any other community. It's It's that native challenge that all humans have with us and them and that you know you can't focus on the other and this also speaks to the notion of of competition not being scalable in order to achieve abundance that's why you have to shift your your thinking to uh collaboration as the only way to do things yeah you know they say like innovation comes from competition all that stuff that, that's no longer true. It might have been true in the 19th century, but it, it is not true in the 21st. Yeah, I, I see that. I see that in uh, a lot of the... I mean, even in something like network marketing, one of the, the things that network marketers are so high on is that they discover that they create wealth only by collaborating with teams and everybody in the team benefiting. Yes. Well, and the, and the counter of that is, if you look at conventional capitalism, there's all of these presumptions. Number one, that everyone agrees that money is what we're looking for. Not happiness, not contentment, not all of those other higher vibrational values, but really the avarice and greed for money, which is also where when we're looking for disruptive things, um, I've been quite vocal that we have some upcoming transitions the first one will be post-petroleum by 2030, and I'd like to see the second one being post-capitalism by 2040. And so if it's post-capitalism, what will it be in terms of the wealth and um, distribution of it? Well, as you know, I'm, I'm, there's a quote from Star Trek, First Contact, where Picard is, you know, you don't have any money, she says. And she says, we have moved beyond the need for money and that now we seek to develop ourselves and humanity. It sounds nice, but... You don't, you don't need money when you have abundance. You see, this is where we have the crossover that happens in the technology is that uh, Jeremy Rifkin published a book called The Zero Marginal um, Economy, Right. And it basically points out that as you put in technology that permanently solves a resource problem, then abundance means that there is no room for middlemen to get a cut, 
and there is no room to actually charge a high price by artificial scarcity. So, you know, we already see this right now, and this was the collapse of the, of the music industry and a good portion of the video industry, because there was a presumption that the artist can create an artificial scarcity, and the technology provides that that wasn't the case. So we ended up having, you know, iTunes coming out to basically say, hey, listen to a song, it's a buck, right? As opposed to what it used to be, which was, you have to buy all the songs on the album, and then when the technology changes the way it's recorded, we want you to keep buying it from us. This was an unjust model that unfairly enriched that industry. And now what we're seeing, driven by millennials and others, is a change in, in the viewpoint. And I often have this discussion even with my own parents, is when you want to compare the millennials and the elder generation, they're all about, you know, pay your bills and, and work hard and, and be a cog in the system. The millennials say, if I don't have to pay for something, why would I ever do that? Mm -hmm. And that leads, that leads to the zero marginal cost thinking and the shared society that we have with Uber and other things. Okay. Where, what, you know, what about, what about choices for places to live? Um, that will differ. Like if you want to live, you know, in a, you have a, a high set of uh, aesthetic standards and you want to live in a very large space, uh, let's say, you know, um, with many, many rooms and uh, uh, acres of land, etc. How does that work for across the board for everybody? Great question. So let me then segue into what Digital Habitats is doing because they're intimately linked. What we're looking at doing is uncoupling and modularizing buildings from both the land and the cities that they normally are attached to. So one of the challenges with humanities is that we seem to have this fixation with real estate. So as we look at building homes with 3D printers and lowering the cost that way, our position is that we can offer people a long-tail, highly customizable home at very low prices and basically get everyone more into the rental or shared home Airbnb market than, or even hoteling than historically the system has been dependent on people staying in the same place for 30 years or having a high penalty in terms of resale value. What we're looking at doing is making all homes be mobile and easily relocatable. Uh, they self-assemble, and basically we want to make an entire community be able to be global nomads. And in that situation, the end consumer buys their house, the walls, the internal fixtures. They spend all of their time and, and money on the fit and finish part, which is what they'll experience, and the underlying infrastructure disappears into the into the frames and into the community and they don't have to pay or buy land. This immediately makes it far more affordable and it also has the added benefit that people, if they don't like the politics where they're at, they can move. So this is something that humanity doesn't really have right now. You're in a city and you're taught, you know, you better like this city and people just nosh on on back and forth when things don't go right. But if we instead make the city more fiscally accountable and that if you're going to buy services from them, that they should be, um, you know, fair priced, so on and so forth, this is a way of disrupting the industries that currently implicitly depend on you having no other options. Yeah, I, you know, I, I love the vision that you're painting. It's very interesting, Chris, when... I don't know why, but as I was growing up, I, uh, in my teens, was thinking of myself as, I used, to, I used to remember specifically thinking, I don't understand nationalism. I think it's very limiting. And I, I really feel that somehow I am an internationalist, that I belong to a family that's global. And now I think the picture that you're painting kind of reinforces that, that we're going to change how we see 
even the family unit, that we're all part of something much, much bigger. Am I right? Yeah, you you definitely are. Um, But also, I think it's not just about internationalism. I think that the next stage in, in our evolution has to involve a technological shell around you, both an AI shell and a physical shell. And right now, we call this a house or a car, right? It's this machine that we put around us. And we're looking at it so that if you buy a digital habitat, you might put it into a house configuration today, you might treat it like it's a vehicle tomorrow, it could go on sea, under sea, or ultimately, our position is, build your house as though it's your spacecraft. Mm-hmm. So everything that you need will be with you, and then that lets you travel absolutely anywhere without borders. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I get that. I mean, it's yeah, it's interesting because when Peter first talked about creating an MTP and uh, being a storyteller, what came to me that excited me was to create a borderless world by raising the global conversation around who we are through the power of storytelling. And it seems to fit with what you're talking about. I yes. Also, huh? Yes, absolutely. But I also feel that, look, let's look now at the base of the hardliners in America who feel that the orange head is a demigod. Uh, without disparaging these people, they're operating with a tremendous amount of fear and ignorance, and they're entrenched. So when this vision starts to come about, won't it be to them a violent threat to their identities? No, it'll be fatal. Yeah, it will, right? Yeah. Yeah, it will be physically fatal. These people will die on that hill. And and you see it now. I mean, you know, these rogue gunmen that go out and shoot people, right? There are the, the far extremists will be dead. That That's what nature is supposed to do. That's they want to operate by the law of the jungle. That's, now, yeah, that's that's like the dinosaur being wiped out because it couldn't adapt to the, the new to new change after the asteroid struck the planet. Absolutely. And, you know, again, not to disparage people, but instead to look at the the most fundamental thing is when you realize that your own brain was designed broken. Not only does it address religious concerns, but specifically there's one that came out, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, called the Dunning-Kruger Cognitive Bias. No. And it was only it was only discovered in 1999, and basically it's the polite way of saying it. The way they say it is, those with low cognitive capacity invariably overestimate their own skills and underestimate those of others. There's a corollary on that, which is those with high capacity invariably underestimate their own capabilities and overestimate others, right? Mm-hmm. What, what this means, and Dunning and Kruger's specific example, and, and the casual way of saying it is, there are some people that are so stupid they don't know how stupid they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And while this sounds inflammatory, the example they used was a fellow who was trying to rob a, a, a store and covered himself in invisible ink, believing he could thwart the cameras. Really? Yes. And, and it, it, they had a number of cases like this, court cases and such, where the point is is that an external observer of supposedly average intelligence can look at that behavior and say, that's just absurd. And we're seeing a lot of that come out in this particular base. So the, to not disparage them, what is important is to realize that Throughout human history, we have allowed the stupid or the cognitively less capable, undereducated, you know, whatever the situation is, to be able to say whatever they wanted on equal footing with the educated. 
And, you know, I think Asimov talked about this as anti-intellectualism and permeated America in the sense that he said, you know, your ignorance is the same as my knowledge. And what we're seeing now is that there's an opportunity for people because there's objective facts and the Internet and all of that to sort of dismiss what previously they would have been caught into the social fact of the of the community they were in and history in order to believe that, well, this was the only right answer. Meanwhile, they're being fooled, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So, you know, our, our position is that uh, if you're operating, um, let's call it a democracy, some of the fundamental flaws in democracy that will need to be addressed is the presumption of one person, one vote, when there isn't a cognitive test. Right, so what, there has to. Well, there I, has, I, I hear you. I hear you, but what's what's a little? I'm a little surprised in a way because what I see from my understanding of, you know, what Peter talks about the six D's of the digital explosion, that democratization is part of it, and that what we're seeing now is the ability for anyone with an expertise, regardless of what letters they have after their name, can thrive and contribute, which brings it down to the fact that that elite structure of the educated and those who are not kind of disappears. But what you're describing feels more like a new elitism. No, actually, I I can give you a quote right out of Martin Luther King. Right? We no longer judge people by the color of their skin. We judge them by the content of their character. That is the only, that is the only true meritocracy. Right? Is that all you have to, anybody can do anything, but you must be able to back it up with the brains, right? And other factors in order to achieve it. And one of the challenges that we're facing in society is that people will pitch the notion of, let's say, the American dream or an ideal situation, and that that pitch was universal, including to those that could never in their wildest imaginings achieve that. And this is actually a form of discrimination. Is that, you know, why do you ask somebody who, for example, might have autism, hey, you want to be president? No, not to say that autistic people do not have you know, their own sets of skills. But what we have to dismiss is the idea that every person is capable of everything. We all have limits. And that also makes uh, a far more profound implication that we are not obligated to listen to everyone for their opinion, particularly when it can be shown to be demonstrably false. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, it's the oranges of the investigation. Yeah, okay, I get that. That's, uh, you know, it's very but this is, this, is, this is very liberating. And, you know, like, like, let me just give two different political systems, the way the Americans look at the intrinsically competitive nature. You know, there's a, a winner and a loser. It's, it's literally sportsing. You pick your team and that's that, right? Not a very rational or pragmatic approach. And this is, again, back to that competition and the general idea that if you can outsmart the stupid person, then you're the winner and they're the loser, and that's the objective. In Canada, we have a different viewpoint of democracy. Ours is not majority rule. Ours is that the majority has an obligation to support the minority. Right? Mm-hmm. They have to lift up those people that that are from different places that may not be capable. And that implication is that if you're not able to handle a task physically, mentally, or otherwise, we shouldn't punish you for that. We should instead find a way that the system can help you either grow or adapt or in some way compensate for things should you desire. You you mean we shouldn't build a wall? Sure, we should. It should be around the belt. It should be around the beltway. Perfect wall. 
but you know that that's partly the point of, of even politicians right you start with the the moral authority or the high values you know human rights equality all those kinds of things and then the challenge is is that the current way that people politic is entirely emotionally driven and the way that you keep score is emotionally driven mm -hmm. and that, that's not practical right you know you need to be um politicking in my opinion shouldn't be a popularity contest for what are really administrative jobs you know we, we glorify the president too much and you know there's an old canadian joke that's uh, something like, you know, in the United States, we tell everybody anybody could be president. In Canada, we say, why would anybody want to be prime minister? <laughs> we have higher aspirations for our kids. That's great. <laughs> you know? I, I would love to know, can you name one life-changing project that your company is set to implement in the near future for the world? Uh, well, like I said earlier, we're trying to implement UN Sustainable Development Goals and in that way bring affordable housing and, and infrastructure resources to the planet. So that's our committed direction. That's my moonshot. That's my MTP. And um, we're hopefully looking to change a lot of lives very soon. And have you actually physically implemented some of these things in the new... Um, at, huh? Excuse me. At, at this point, most of what we're doing is is using new tech, so we're right on the cutting edge. Okay. Now, how is the movie Ready Player One more than most people think? Because there are a lot of people who won't even see it because they, say, oh, come on, that's a kids thing. It's about a video game. It's just this delightful distraction, but. There's more to it than that. You know what's really interesting is, in asking that question, the one image that I'm most struck by, by Ready Player One, is this idea of um, hundreds of mobile homes all stacked on each other in a bamboo framework that falls apart. That's real life today. That is literally their, their representation of real life is probably, if not physically correct, is logistically correct. There are literally people who have nothing that are wobbling around waiting for things to collapse. And at the same time, they're trying to find a different route. Now, how it's also more real is that VR, AR technology is fusing those two worlds into one. So with digital twinning, there's going to be no difference between being in the real world and being in the world that you choose to be in. So this is going to be much more like uh, like Gibson was proposing in Necromancer than Ready Player One. I didn't get the last one. Uh, that Who was? Um, Gibson. Necromancer. You know his work? No. You said the word very fast. It could be my hearing. Say... Well, I said, I said ready. I said ready player one. Now that that I heard, but you said Gibson. Yeah, it's um, is it Neil Gibson? Uh, and what's the what's the oh, piece, okay. what's the piece that you referred to? The book is called Necromancer. Oh, Necromancer! I don't. I haven't read it. Okay, Necromancer. In fact, you know, my this is where my organic is. Uh, I know his last name's Gibson, and, and his first name now escapes me. I think it's William Gibson, actually. But for the benefit of our audience, they may go, what is he talking about? I, uh, well, hold on. We've got the internet, right? They can learn. Necromancer. N-E-C-R-O-M-A-N-S-E-R, I believe. Actually, my mistake. It's Neuromancer. Or, or Neuromancer. And Mancer is with a C-E-R or S-E-R. It's N-E-U-R-O-M-A-N-C-E-R -E -E by William Gibson. Okay. It was a 1984 scientific, science fiction novel by American-Canadian writer. Hmm. Interesting. It's probably required reading for most people. <laughs> what is your favorite book? Um... 
I was torn on that. The one was uh, Foundation and Empire, but I actually have to say that probably it's Childhood's End by Arthur Clarke. And, and the reason is that Childhood's End describes what I think is going to happen with the singularity. Have you read the book? No. No. Well, there actually was a sci-fi miniseries a couple of years ago that I highly recommend. They did a three-parter. And basically, this is a storyline about um, aliens coming to Earth and helping to shepherd the children into the next level of human evolution. Mm. And one of the key points is that the aliens um, are actually working under the, let's call it the universal mind, called the overmind, and they're called the overlords, and not to spoil it too much, but they look exactly like the devil. Hmm. But this leads to logistical problems with the religious. Yeah, of course, of course. But it's a fabulous book because, you know, at the end, basically, humanity has the children who become elevated, right? And the overlords say to the adults, um, because we are benevolent, we will let you continue living out your natural lives, the adults, and you just can't have any more kids. <laughs> so they basically sterilize the adults, take the children away, and end humanity on Earth. This book will not go very well, won't go over very well in the Bible Belt. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's right. And, you know, there, you really should, you should, I should get you the, the, the sci-fi series because there's some really interesting concepts in here. Like one part, basically, they bring world peace out right away. And so at one point they start saying, well, you know, in order to improve the world, we're going to have to solve some of the problems. Uh, one of the problems is food distribution. So since America doesn't need a Navy anymore to cause war, we're going to repurpose those ships and we're going to start transporting food from, you know, into Africa, stuff like that. And then on another matter, since we don't need to pipe oil around anymore, we're going to convert all of the oil pipelines into water distribution systems so that everybody can have universal water. So they basically do a lot of what the abundance discussion is by applying technology to solve the global problem once, mm -hmm. and then that, so there's no longer a need to continue with the old system. Mm -hmm. So that goes for religion as well, right? You know, when why, why do people adhere to a religion? Is it really a belief that, you know, there's some other deity that they should run their life on? I think not. I no, think it's no. It's actually our own fears at our own incompetence. And that as we become more technologically savvy and start developing our own God powers, there's, you know, as, as there is more fact that comes to light, there's no room for faith. Oh, I, I agree with that. Um, I do think that there will be people listening to this who will want to burn you at the stake. Uh, but, you know, you, you're probably used to that. Well, they, they're wearing abundance in Salem. Have they not come forward since then? Uh, they've moved around a lot, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, but, you see, Lewis, that's actually the good part about the age that we're in. Because, as I was saying before, um, with abstract objective information, no one needs to listen to the fairy tales of religion. It's not an obligation like it was when Newton was around. Yeah, right? yeah, Newton is uh, is going the way of the dinosaur, but a lot of people don't know that. What is your favorite quote? You know, I don't necessarily have one, but I'm going to throw one out that I just picked up off of um, John Lithgow. Okay. Cultivate humility. You never know when you're going to need it. Lithgow said that? Yeah. It's great. A couple of nights, a couple of nights ago, he was on um, Stephen Colbert. Yeah, it's a great one. 
Yeah. You never know when you're going to need it. And, you know, it's really sort of an anti-ego comment, right? Be humble, you know, because one of the challenges, and even with what I do, is it's very easy to get wrapped up in what might be superior knowledge or a belief in superior knowledge. And it's always a, a good idea to keep a perspective on yourself and, and be humble about things. Beautiful idea to come to a close. How can people contact you, my friend? Do you want them to? Sure. If you're if you're looking to change your life, if you're looking to craft a better future, then the easiest way to get me is Chris at digitalhabitats.ca. Chris at digitalhabitats.ca. Yep. And do you have a website for that your company? Yeah, it's digitalhabitats.global. Okay. They can take a look at that. Sure. Sign up on our mailing list. Because that's actually right now it's it's in a it's in a stealth mode, but the idea is that we're looking for people who want to have new kinds of living situations and we're looking for communities that want to start projects. So this is our um portal to let people come into that and hopefully we can develop something and then publish it. Fantastic. Any final thoughts for our storytellers today? I think that the one thought I'd like to leave people with is we all spend too much time, you know, what was that saying? Life is what happens while you're making other plans. Mm -hmm. Given the nature of our exponential change, we should spend 80% of our time planning our future and only 20% living it. Mm, I like that. You know, and don't spend any time on the past because you're not going to learn anything from it. And what my final words to the storytellers is, this episode has taken the whole notion of changing your story, changing your life to a new level. We're talking about changing a vision, a story about who we are on this planet. And it can be very exciting if you embrace what is being put in your hands. And I want to thank you so much, Chris. It's been a very exciting and, I would say, mind-expanding conversation with you. I'm happy to have been here. and Hopefully, it's mind-expanding for all of us. Thank you. Thank you, storytellers, for being part of this experience today. Enrich others by letting them know that they can hear this, too, on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, and at the website, changeyourstorypodcast.com. At the website, you will find a free gift that I've created for you, a downloadable ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. You can get instant access to it right now by going to changeyourstorypodcast.com and downloading your free copy. Also take advantage of the gift that our sponsor Audible is offering to the listeners of this show. That is a free audiobook of your choice and you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. In the spirit of giving, I'm going to ask you to give me a few more moments of your time by going to iTunes and in the podcast category, finding Change Your Story, Change Your Life. And where you see that you can leave a brief review and a star rating, in the review, just state what your biggest takeaway was from today's episode. And I hope that I've earned a five-star rating from you. When you do that, you're telling iTunes to allow the show to climb the ranks. Then more people will find it and be able to enjoy it. 
If you haven't already subscribed to the show and you're getting value from it, then subscribe while you're visiting iTunes. One final thought. Whenever you find yourself facing a decision that's hard to make, stop. Don't let your mind work hard. Just take a deep breath and then ask, how can I change my story and change my life? Then pause for a moment and allow the answer to come to you. I look forward to sharing another enriching experience with you on the next episode. Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.